Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of Merrill Memo. I'm Mark Barnes and back from my overseas travels here to sit down this week with Matt Dickerson, our local mayor. Now let's have a look at uh, see what we're going to talk about today. So on today's program, we're going to discuss the Australia Day events. Now of course uh, there's a little bit of controversy uh, leading up to that this year, but things seem to have gone incredibly well, so we'll talk about what happened there on Australia Day. We'll also talk about what's happened down there at Sandy Beach. Now apparently there's been a little bit of movement of sand and these sort of things, and the council's been involved in setting things back up there, but there again there may have been a little bit of controversy about this. So let's talk about that today as well. And of course, uh, there's other things happening, including what's happening out there at Booth and Bar Road and the costing of what it actually takes to put in simple little things like an intersection point there for Booth and Bar Road to go into the abattoir section. You're going to be very surprised at how much this costs and from the point of view of the Dubbo budget here with roads, just to see how much money is involved in regards to actually building these roads. Well, Matt, I'm back. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Actually, more to the point, how are you? I actually think it's great that you can live somewhere like Dubbo, have beautiful lifestyle, have a short commute to work, beautiful air to breathe. But if you want to explore the world, mm. well, we're probably an hour's flight away from Sydney and then the world is your oyster. And off to see those magic places like London and Paris and <laughs> Wales and all these cool places. May I say cool, because uh, when I actually left London the other morning, and I think it was only been 72 hours ago, it feels like, <laughs> got back uh, about uh, here in Dubbo in that sort of short space of time, hit back to 38 degrees. We left London, it was minus three in the morning. <laughs> Frost was everywhere. There was this fog settling in. And I'm looking at my uh, my little Google sort of set up there going, Dubbo weather, 38 degrees. And, oh, you're kidding. <laughs> so it really has been a baptism of fire, literally, but coming back here. So we found it a bit hot because it hasn't been that hot a summer yet. Thank God but, you found hot as well. <laughs> but we've gone from mid-20s to high 30s. You've gone from the negatives oh, to the high 30s. One extreme to the other is like the coldest part of winter through the hottest part of summer, all in about 24 hours. Now, oh. the important question here. Did you miss me while you were gone? Oh, did you man, think about me while I, you were away? I cried myself to sleep every night. I really <laughs> did. <laughs> but it is nice to get back home, isn't it? As much as you travel yes. around the world and you've had a fantastic holiday, you kind of get back to Australia and back to Dubbo and you go, it's nice to travel, Yes, but it's nice to be back here as well. Isn't it just? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. that's how I feel. Don't oh, put no, words no, in your I, mouth. I, no, I, absolutely. Look, you know, uh, once I sort of uh, um, saw the, the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Opera House, as everyone does, uh, you know, the, the old uh, Peter Allen song starts to play in the back <laughs> of your head. You can't help yourself, can you? It's lovely. It really yeah, is. Yeah, it is. So, no, it is great to discover other parts of the world. And I know when I travel with the kids, and not so much now, they're a bit older, but when they were younger, and I'd say, right, when we land somewhere, mm. look for things that are different, which doesn't mean they're wrong. Mm. They're just different. And Absolutely. you'd see a speed sign on the side of the road. It was done in a different way. And it's just different. Yeah. Humans in different areas came up with different solutions to the same problem. So it was always fascinating to me yeah. to find, I wonder why they did that. I wonder how mm. that came about as opposed to how we came up with our solution in Australia. Mm. But mm. it's just a couple of things. I think I think we've got a fantastic nation. So that's an easy part of it. I think we've got a fantastic city and a great lifestyle here in yes, Dubbo. Yes. But I think more than that, you become familiar with all of that. And when you're traveling around, it's all a bit different. And it's great and exciting to begin with. But after a while, you get to the stage where you go, oh, I just want to be able to order a coffee that I know is going to be made the same way that oh. I'm accustomed to it and just drink it. Boy, oh boy, you've just hit a real sort of raw nerve for me. Let me tell you, the <laughs> coffees. But now, look, I, I don't want to spoil anyone's trips and ideas about going over the UK, but I can tell you and rest assured the fact we do outstanding coffee here in Australia. <laughs> and particularly here in Dubbo, we do some of the best coffee in the world. And I say that absolutely honestly, having struggled through uh, Parisian coffee shops and seeing when 
they go, you pay your three uh, pound fifty or whatever it is for your for your coffee there, which is basically pressing a button and away it comes out and they sort of slap it on there. Yeah. Uh, so then you come back here to Australia and you see and you really do learn to appreciate the great coffee we have here. So uh, yeah, that is definitely something we have here big time. That That's takes right. it over the Parisians. And it's one of the minor things but yeah oh, for a coffee lover it's a big thing it is because you think it's not that big a deal but that's after right. weeks and weeks of having coffee that's below standard you yeah, go yeah. like just i want to go and have a normal coffee i want to order a coffee from someone that understands how to make it and yep. then i drink it and it's all okay so anyway Absolutely. welcome back oh it, thank you my friend it's great to we, be we've back. missed you the community's missed you over oh, the last God, six love weeks them. i'm sending out my love and kisses to you all right now <laughs> <laughs> well buddy let's get straight into it uh australia day now listen i got back on the 25th so i was actually here for australia day but I have to say, I, I slept through most of Australia Day. <laughs> <laughs> Jet lag was a big thing for me. Yeah, so how did it all go anyway? Because you had Wellington, you had Dubbo. Now you had the, the Twilight uh, Wellington, which capped on the 25th the mm. night before. Now there was a little bit of controversy leading up to this. How did it all go though? Was it a good result? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll talk about both separately because I think there's important parts in both of them. So the mm. Wellington one for a start, we and we talked about this before on our podcast, we wanted to have both ceremonies the night before, but we couldn't because the federal government told us, and we've gone through the whole detail, I won't go and, and bore everyone mm. again with it all, but we basically said we couldn't have the Dubbo ceremony on the 25th, whole range of rules in the Australian Citizenship Code, yeah. but in Wellington we could have it on the 25th. So we went ahead with that. We got the Wellington Town Committee, went through that process, got their opinion on it. They were happy with the idea of a twilight event, went through a council resolution. So it mm. went through a public process. We had engaged with people over the few months before that, but importantly, we said to the community, this was a trial, a one-year trial, and now we'll go out and survey the community and find out what they want to do next year. But in terms of an event, it went very well. The crowd was bigger than we'd oh, seen wow, at okay. previous Wellington yep, events. Yep. We had a market stall event, so markets, uh, an afternoon, evening, Is that the first time market. that's actually happened, where you had the markets with it as well? Or? Exactly right. So okay. we've had other things associated with Australia Day, but not a market as such. So they set up at about four o'clock in the afternoon. Great. Range of markets there. The Rotary Club and the Rotary Markets were set up there. The ceremony, the formal part of the ceremony started at 5.30. We've had yep. a bit of feedback to say maybe six o'clock might have been a better time. And yep. that's the sort of thing when we go out and survey the community, yep. we'll ask for that. So maybe six o'clock will be a better time to start it if we yep. do it at the Twilight event again. Yep. But it was actually quite nice in Cameron Park. You had the shade in the right mm. spot. You had the temperature cooling down. Yeah. So it all looked fantastic. Again, a huge crowd there, which was great. Wonderful. And we had Peter Herbert, who was our ambassador. He's a screenwriter and producer. And he talked about some of the old shows that we grew up with, Cop Shop, Sullivan, some oh, of those. Oh, so was, was he part of the Crawford production? He was wasn't exactly he? right, uh, part okay, of the Crawford yeah. production. That's yep. right. So he talked about some of those and, and gave some good stories, as Wonderful. ambassadors typically do. Yep. And then we added another. So there were a couple of changes we made. The first thing was to add the markets, which yeah. seemed to be a big success. Second thing, Twilight. Now, I did get a bit of abuse, a few abusive emails and a few abusive phone calls about that. Yes, you're getting a few abusive females, Matt. There's, there's uh, emails, 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 not females, emails. <laughs> <laughs> not abusive females, emails. <laughs> My apologies there. If it sounded like females, it was not going to sound like females. Uh, but the, the, a lot of people were accusing me or council of right. changing the date. And certainly having a toilet event was never about changing the date. And if mm. you look at the announcement of the annual Australian of the Year Awards, mm. They've taken place in Canberra on the 25th of January, on the yeah. evening of the 25th of January, since 2004. Yeah. So it's not as if we were suddenly going, let's have it on the night before and change the date. Yeah. If it's good enough for the Prime Minister of the day to present the Australian of the Year awards the night before, why isn't it good enough for yeah. the Wellington community? So we so, did that. Because sort of, I'll just stop you there for a second. It's sort of, to me, thinking about this too, is it so much about the date or should the focus really be about the whole idea of what does the day represent? Correct. 
You know what I mean? Like it's there's all this sort of talk about the day, and I, I get that, and I'm not sort of trying to sort of put an opinion on this, but I do feel as though we're losing focus here in regards to what the actual day represents. The day should be about inclusiveness. Now, as you say, like down in Canberra, they have the biggest part of the ceremony for Australia Day happens on the 25th, yeah. the evening. Oh, that's that's the announcement of the Australian of the Year and the new Australian of the Year, and you get the the well, they get the the elder person of the year, and there's all these other sort of things they have, the sports star of the year. That all happens on the 25th. So the focus there is on who are these great Australians and what have they done and what are they going to do for the rest of us in, from the point of view of promoting their causes over the course of the next 12 months. And, you know, from our point of view out here in the country, I sort of think too personally that we've got to get back to the whole idea of this inclusiveness of what the day is about. Now, if what we're doing here is getting more people out and they're enjoying the day and they're enjoying being part of it, the Australian community, isn't that the important thing? It you know. seems to be, and that's part of the messaging from, from our perspective. And keep in mind how history works in all of this. Hmm. 235 years ago, it was Captain Arthur Phillip arrived at Sydney Cove on the 26th of January. But it was only in 1994 that 26th of January was declared a national public holiday. Yeah. So, so it's, it's not, not as long, if, is it? That's right. right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, not been if, something that's set for 200 years. This has right. been going only a short time. And so it does commemorate something that happened 235 years ago, but again... From an Aboriginal perspective, that's a painful day. Yeah. That's a day of, as they call it, a survival day, genocide day, a whole range of Absolutely. names, invasion day, yep. whole range of names have been given to it. So if there's pain associated with that day with a part of our community, if we did have the celebration twilight event or a yep. different day, yep. again, it's all about, to me, celebrating what a wonderful nation. We've just talked about your trip overseas. Yeah, what a wonderful yeah. nation we've got here Absolutely. and what wonderful people we've got here. Yep. So that seems to be the more important part of the focus from our perspective. So yeah. we did that, the twilight event with that. We right. also introduced an Aboriginal elder as one of the speakers. So normally nice. an Australia Day will have the mayor of the day gives an address, the ambassador gives an address, so I mentioned Peter Herbert already, and then you move into the award ceremony. But this year we added an Aboriginal elder. In, in Wellington it was Uncle Joe Daly who gave an Aboriginal elder address. Now again, the idea of that is to give some context, to yeah. say the 60,000 years of history here yeah. with Aboriginal people. So let's it's hear from them. It's part of our story. Exactly right. So, and it's inclusive. Yeah. So that yeah. all seemed to go quite well. Uh, I let Richard Ivey, the Deputy Mayor, I, I asked him to do the mayoral address in Wellington. Great. He's from Wellington. He's the one of the two... Wellington Ward people that were elected, so I thought that was more appropriate rather than the Mayor of the Day. I was there at the ceremony, but I, I wanted yep. it to be all about Wellington. Yep. And you've got the Wellington Town Committee now. It had been in the past. The committee, the Australia Day Committee, made the choices of who the award winners were, but that was mainly made up of double people, so they mm. didn't have the full understanding. So we've changed it this year, and so now the Wellington Australia Day Committee makes the decisions on Excellent. things like how the ceremony looks the different parts of the ceremony, the award winners, etc. And I'll just run yep. through the award winners very briefly. Great. Jennifer Wikes was named the Citizen of the Year. Shirley Drysdale was the Senior Citizen of the Year. Chloe Shanahan was the Young Citizen of the Year. The Young Sports Person of the Year was Ronnie Tandy-Bell. And they have a different award in Wellington that we have in Dubbo called the Event of the Year. And the Wellington Estedford Canteen won the Event of the Year. They also have five community service awards that were won yep. by people in Wellington. So that'll seem to go down quite well. Wonderful. The well, congratulations to all those recipients as well. Yeah, and, and they were very worthy recipients. I do get mm. one of the really lucky things I get to do as mayor is I get to sit on the committees that actually make the decisions about Lovely. things like award winners. Yep. One of the things I get a real buzz out of that is, 
looking through those nominations, mm. seeing all the wonderful work that people do in the community. It's a tough job to choose mm. one out mm. of those, but gee, there's some great people in the community. So mm. those people are very are worthy award winners and the, the canteen a very worthy event. But the markets then continued on till basically dark, okay. well attended. So all reports so far, it's been good. But again, you get feedback on this now. So we'll the next survey part? the community yeah, okay. and we'll say, did you like the time? Would you prefer a different time? Now, again, the Australian Citizenship Ceremony Code was changed after all the controversy with mm. us at the end of last year saying we wanted to have the Devo Ceremony the night before we weren't allowed to. They've now changed that code. Mm. So from next year, we'll be able to have it in a window three days before or on 26th of January or three days after. Right, so that's that's quite a stretch. That's almost like a week. That's exactly right. Yeah. So we will be able to have it. So we'll survey the community and find out when they would like to have it. They might like to have it the closest Saturday night mm. associated with it. They might mm. like to have it the day before, 26th January. A whole range of different options there. Yeah. But we'll go through and survey the community, find out what they thought of, about the idea of an Aboriginal elder, yeah. how the markets worked, all the rest of it. So that was Wellington. Yep. If I move on to Dubbo, yes. as we've talked about, we had to have Dubbo on the 26th. We had no choice there. So 26th of January was the process there. So we didn't change the timing there, but we did add an Aboriginal elder. So we had Lewis Burns, one of our councillors. Yes. He spoke as the Aboriginal elder. David Hall, OAM, was our ambassador. He's a Paralympic tennis champion. So he's got a gold medal from Paralympics. Oh, he was world number one for almost 10 years. Wow. So there pretty impressive there. That's very impressive. And I did talk about it when I introduced David on the day that mm. I believe that David broke new ground. Mm. There hadn't been a world number one wheelchair tennis player, male wheelchair tennis player in Australia before. So being the first mm. shows people that there's a path that you can go mm. down. So mm. the Australian of the Year last year, Dylan Alcott, mm. I would say, and I haven't spoken to Dylan about this, but I would say he was able to do what he did mm. because of people like David Hall who came before. When you stand on the shoulder of giants. Correct. Exactly mm. right. So I think David did a great thing for wheelchair tennis, for sport in general in yep. this country. So that was fantastic to have him along. And then our award winners, we had Peter Hargreaves as the Citizen of the Year. Brian Goodlett was the Senior Citizen of the Year. Right. Tony Wheatland was the Cultural Person of the Year. Emily Williams was the Sports Person of the Year. Jack Deverson was the Young Sports Person of the Year. Unfortunately, he wasn't at the ceremony because, guess what? He was away competing, so yeah, yes. uh, he couldn't be there. And Cameron Porteous was recognised for services to sport. Oh, Again, the ceremony... Great names there as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. Great names. The ceremony, we started at early, 8.30 a.m. to try and beat the heat, but it still was fairly hot by the time you finished mm. that ceremony. Mm. But again, very well attended. I can't remember seeing a bigger ceremony. But also, Wonderful. we had 49 people who we conferred citizenship that, on. Is, is that a record for Dubbo? We, we couldn't find anywhere that we have more people on no. Australia Day being made citizens. So that was a, a really exciting part well, of I it. I heard there too, Matt, that 20,000 new Australians became citizens on Australia Day. And we got 49 of those. Now, 49. That's, that's impressive, thinking of how many different communities are out there with uh, new people sort of arriving in their place. So we, 49 new people have chosen Dubbo as their home. Exactly that's, that's right. That's extraordinary. That's wonderful. And the other part that I find exciting is, and I did mention this to the crowd on the day, I want people in the crowd to go and talk to some of these new citizens and mm. find out their story because – leaving your country mm. to go to another country is a big thing. I can't imagine me doing it, no, but a whole neither. range of reasons that yep. people have done that. But then you've got 193 countries around the world mm. and you mm. chose Australia. So mm. I get pretty excited about mm. that. As an Aussie, mm. I go, yeah, wow, yeah. that's pretty good. But then out of all the places, 7.6 million square kilometres you've got across this nation, mm. you chose Dubbo. Oh, 
That's right. Wow. I want to know why you chose Dubbo. I want to know why you chose Australia. I want to know why you left your country. I want to know the background. Mm. And so on normal citizenship days that we do, we might typically do 20, maybe 30 every couple of months. So I like to get around to as many of those people as possible and ask them those questions. I couldn't do it on Australia. There were too many there for me to do it on Australia. 49 is a lot of people to have a conversation with. A lot of people, that's right. But I did say to the crowd, go and find one of these new citizens and ask them why. Find out their story and I guarantee there'll be some interesting story, some fascinating story behind all of that. So, Mm. very interesting day. We'll survey the Dubbo community as well because next year we could do it as a twilight event. part of that week sort of almost process now. Exactly right. It's it's up to the community now to make a decision on this, is it? That's right. Now, we did do markets with Dubbo as well. My dream for the market is to make it a multicultural food market because, again, don't forget that that in the – our Dubbo Regional Council local government area, we've got 16.6% of people who identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders, but you've also got 18.5% who were born overseas. So that whole multicultural flavour there, let's have a, a look at that markets and introduce that. We might even get to the stage where we get feedback from people saying, mm. we heard from an Aboriginal elder, mm. maybe we should hear from someone to hear about the multicultural journal mm. as well. Now, we don't want to make 20 speeches on the mm. day, no. but with that many people, with almost one in five people coming yeah. from overseas, born overseas, yeah. uh, maybe there's a story Ways to tell. Ways to continue to inclusive, to create that inclusiveness again, isn't it? That's, That's what exactly we're looking right. for here. And yeah. one of the things that I did mention on the day, I did do some poetry on the day, of course. I like to do poetry every day, uh, every Australia day. It's always a good spot for us some good poetry. That's right. A good crowd that doesn't seem to run away. They're waiting for the rest <laughs> of the events to finish. <laughs> but more to the point, I did talk about the fact that we are a wonderful melting pot. So yeah. we've got people that have been here, and the term we use in the day was 60,000 years or 60,000 seconds. Mm. We've got people that have been here for a very short period of time, a very long period of time. Mm. But one of the things I love about the Dubbo community and the Australian community is we put our arms out and we welcome all those people in. So yeah. to my mind, great day. Looking forward to hearing feedback from people about the day. Some people might yeah. not have turned up in protest, and so let's hear from them as well. Yep. But I think we've got the potential to make it a very inclusive day, and that's what we're working oh, towards. Well done. Now, Matt, Sandy Beach. It's always been uh, one of those Dubbo iconic areas. Must be up there with Bondi, I'd suggest, the old Sandy Beach. Um, now, the floods, obviously, what's happened there. Uh, there's been some movement. There's been um, the change in the sand. Uh, I think there's been more sands being dumped there, I would suggest. You'd be sitting on the point there, the way it comes around the corner. Um, so what's happened down there at Sandy Beach? Because I think you've... Council's come in and done a bit of work there, I'd suggest, to uh, to try to maybe level it out. I'm not really quite sure. You can explain, obviously, better to me. But has there been a little bit of controversy about this, though? Has, has this created a bit of an issue uh, within some departments? What's what's happened here? You've been away for six weeks. You come back and hit me with two controversial ones, Australia Day and oh, this, I've been thinking away. about these things, Matt. I've got plenty of time on my hand. You've had your finger on the pulse, oh, Absolutely. That's it. <laughs> so let's go back a little bit. Back around July last year... We closed the Tamworth Street or the Yabangji Bridge, Mm -hmm. the pedestrian bridge there, because the river was at such a high level. And so that went from about July through to December. That was closed. Now, you can imagine if the water's up at that level around that pedestrian bridge, then around Sandy Beach, when you get a bit further downstream, it's covering up a lot of that Sandy Beach area. So. You hit the nail on the head. Mm. The river that high, it's dumped a lot of sand there. Now, the river's gone down. One of the things that we did, trying to be efficient from our council staff perspective, is we went down there to do some work. Now, we have, and it's interesting, the river has got different agencies that take responsibility for different parts. New South Wales Fisheries have the control of some parts of the river. Right. But 
water in New South Wales also controls parts of the river. And believe it or not, transport for New South Wales controls some parts of the river. Is that and there right? are different areas. I would and never so, have guessed that. Well, no, that's right. And there are different agencies who have control over different areas there. And then council often ends up doing the work at the end of it all. Right. And it was interesting, when we changed the weir, you might remember about 2016 from memory, uh, that's about seven years, yeah, that's about right. So seven years ago, we changed the weir because we'd had some drownings over the mm. 80, 90 years that we had been there. Mm. So we put a rock fill downstream of oh, the yes, weir. Yes. Now, when that was happening, it was about a $3 million project. Mm. We were going through a process to work out who owned the weir. Right. We would have preferred that the council didn't own the weir because we didn't want to pay for it but there was that much argument that occurred about which state government agency might own the weir and the river and all sorts of in the end we said it's too important for our community to fix this problem council will just go and pay for it yeah right and and so we had to pay for it in the end again there's still debate about who owns the weir but let's forget about that for the moment we had to do it and it's been done and it's a bit the same with this when we had sand on the beach we've got general permission to undertake emergency repair work along the waterway after floods. So as a simple example, you've got boat ramps that go down to the river. When the flood goes away, there's often silt left on there that's slippery, that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. So council will come along and remove that silt, scrape that silt, put it back in the river. It's like a WH&S issue almost, isn't it? Well, more than that, it's probably a public liability issue, more so than just a, a staff issue. So we fix that up and we've got general permission to go and do that. We don't need to go through a specific request to get the permission from New South Wales Fisheries to do that. With the sand that was dumped on Sandy Beach, our staff, again being efficient, wanted to restore access to the beach for people because what happened was it ended up being fairly steep edges to that. So to get down the river, if you're a bit older, or you had young kids or maybe Mm. even animals, it was a bit hard to get to. Mm. We've also got recreational users that want to put canoes in at Mm -hmm. the river there. The Dragon Boat Club uses it. So there's a range of recreational users there. And we love people using our river for recreation. We think it's fantastic. And Sandy Beach is not quite as big as Bondi Beach, but it is a very popular area there. Absolutely. we went ahead and did some work there where we essentially got a contractor in to move the sand apart to allow some more gradual access down okay. to the river. Getting a normal sort of gradient sort of drop into the water again. Spot on. We'll yep. try to make it safer there to access the river. Now, <laughs> it becomes more interesting then. New South Wales Fisheries contacted us and said, you've done some work there. You didn't get permission from us to do it. And we said, no. We didn't think we needed to. We were doing that under the normal permission we have for emergency repair work. Then it gets interesting because if you look at the Section 200 of the New South Wales Fisheries Management Act 1994. I haven't read that. No, that's right. And I hadn't before this either. (laughs) But it says that if we want to do dredging on the river, we need to get permission from New South Wales Fisheries. Now, dredging... For you and I. It'd be like going through the old dredging boats sort of thing. We're dragging up the... That's know, exactly Make right. areas deeper in, in the actual main part of the river would be my interpretation of that. That's, that's what a normal, I would say, dredging definition yeah, would be, yeah. that you're going along and dragging sediment, debris, mm. whatever, out mm. of the middle of the river, maybe making it deeper, yeah. clearing up the middle of the river and yeah. using some sort of dredging boat. Yeah. But if you go to Section 198A of the same act that I just mentioned... Dredging has a definition that says any work that involves moving material on water land, and further, the definition of water land is any water, uh, sorry, any land submerged by water, whether permanently or intermittently. 
So by the definition of waterland, Sandy Beach was obviously underwater. Yes. Therefore, it comes under the definition of waterland. Therefore, by the definition under the Act of dredging, if we move material on that waterland, then that's dredging. So putting all that together, yep, yep, you've done the wrong thing. Technically, <laughs> council has done dredging in inverted right, commas. Okay. And therefore, under the Act, we need to gain permission from New South Wales Fisheries. So, after discussions, and we get on very well with government yep. agencies, yep. we don't go and stick our middle finger up and say, bad luck, we're going to do it anyway. Yep. So, we said to fisheries, sort of thing. Yes. that's right, we said to fisheries, we'll go and restore the sand right. to how it was before. Then we'll go through and ask permission to change the beach to make it safer Did for... Do they expect you to do that? This is what the agreement we now have. So, voluntarily, we'll restore the sand to how it was. So we'll put really? that that riverbank back to how it was. Is that just me, or does that just seem like an overkill? Like I, I don't know. Just just from someone, I, I'm look. I'm simply coming here from the point of view of, of a layman person thinking, all right, I'm a Dubbo citizen, and, and I get that there's there's laws and you know subsection clause and sort of stuff in regards to this with the fisheries, but. To have done this, and and I'd be assuming I, I don't know if the fish are complaining about this. I've, I don't want to be, <laughs> but but to to have done this and then uh, and, and fixed it all up, and then sort of to have suddenly made a mistake. Oh look, I'm sorry, I, I misread or didn't read the the subsection clause part B of the Fisheries Act, and then for them to turn around and say, oh, what the agreement is to turn around and say, okay, listen, well you're going to have to restore all this and go back, and then get permission, and then you can come back and do it again. It's, what's what's going to be in the process in regards to get permission? Is someone's got to come down and do a, a full assessment of this to determine if, if the fish are going to be happy for that to be done again? Or I, I don't want to be facetious about this, but <laughs> I, I certainly coming across like it. But it just seems to me a bit of you know legal overkill. It seems like a very bureaucratic process to me. I'm it trying does. to be very careful with the way I'm choosing my yes, words here, yes. but it does. I do agree with you. It does seem a little bit over the top because keep in mind that. We didn't put the sand there. That's right. So it's, it's not, and some people did think that. Some people thought council came and dumped sand there. The river dumped sand there. So if someone's at fault here, blame yep. the river because yep. the river was at high levels. Blame <laughs> the rain. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It put the sand there. So it's dumped the extra sand on yep. Sandy Beach. Yep. What we want to do as council is make it better for our community. Yep. And again, our staff believe they're doing the right thing because they're making it better, making it more accessible. But mm. so now voluntarily, we don't want to have an argument with fisheries. We don't like having an argument no. with our various agencies we deal mm. with. We'll restore that sand. We'll then go and apply for permission with a plan to change the look of that area to make it safer, more accessible, etc., for people. And then we'll go and do some work after we get permission. Mm. So it's getting it in the right order. Mm. Mm. So yes, it's a process we'll follow. Yes, you might end up with exactly the same result. It might be a little bit mm. different. They might ask us to shape it a little bit differently. I don't know exactly what, but. From a community perspective, hmm. we're working with the agencies. We'll get it right. And at the moment, yes, you can access it. And in fact, I was down there after park run on the weekend yep. and went down there and I saw people taking their dogs down. And guess okay. what? They were using the path that had been cleared yeah. with the sand. Made Funny a little bit that, isn't it? <laughs> Funny how that <they laughs> works. gradient to get to the, to yeah. the actual river. And down there at the riverbank, hmm. I could see some water on the sand where people yeah. would obviously be in and out of the water that Can I ask morning. you a question in regards to public liability for a second? This, this is in regards to uh, the whole idea of, of, of what, what laws take precedent over other laws. Um, in regard, let's say someone has gone down there to Sandy Beach and you've got this steep sort of drop-off that's been caused there by you know, the, the floods. Council's aware of the fact this problem's actually happened, there's been there. But because of the fact there's this process between fisheries and council in regards to waiting for the, getting permission to do it all properly, you know, so some person falls, 
falls down on a cracks their neck and you know serious injury takes place what takes precedence there is is it council's responsibility to turn around and and look at that and say well this is a this is potentially a public liability issue for us here shouldn't we be down there trying to get this sorted out pretty quickly or should we be cutting off this area and saying it's too dangerous or should we have to go through fisheries first like you know what i mean like it it just seems again there's a lot of bureaucracy in regards to to all of this um, and i was thinking maybe that safety would be the highest priority yes so i'm not a solicitor but <laughs> what you've got to do normally with public liability is prove that someone has been negligent right. or someone has willfully done something or someone has known about an issue and then chosen to deliberately do nothing. So mm. that third one might be the area mm. that might be there. So what we'll probably have to do is when we restore the sand, we'll probably have to mark that area as a no-go zone mm. until we get the plan approved by fisheries and then make yeah. the changes so that we don't get the exact scenario that you talked about, someone running down towards the beach, oh, no, it's a bit steeper than normal, trip yeah. over and fall headfirst into the sand and mm. then hurt themselves mm. and then come and say to council, well, you should have fixed that problem up. You knew about that problem. Mm. So, again, I don't know this for sure, but I suggest mm. we'll probably will. Sounds like a logical response, I think. Yeah, yeah. we'll probably yeah. string it off there, put some tape there to say don't go in this area yeah. until we fix it up there. So, whereas at the moment, at least you can access it. So, sometimes bureaucracy gets in the road of bureaucracy mm. and where are the precedents? Typically, we are council. We're at the end of the food chain. Mm. So the state government mm. overrules council. The acts of the state government overrule council. Councils are but uh, a mere thought of state government. So state government mm. has power over council typically. Mm. So we've got to follow the acts before. We've got to follow things in the Local Government Act. But again, Fisheries Act would come before what might happen in the Local Government Act typically. Yes. There's a pretty grey area there and there's a whole lot of legal stuff that, again, I'm not a solicitor to, uh, to make a true comment on. But yep. that gives you the information. So we haven't put sand there. No. Yes, we moved sand around. Yes, fisheries didn't like the fact that we did. We'll work with them. There's no arguments going on. We'll yep. just comply and work with them to the best outcome for yes. the community and we'll go on to serve another day. Uh, well done. I hope the fish are happy. Now, Matt, uh, Booth and Bar Road. Now, this is up where the Dubbo Regional Livestock Markets are, up there on Booth and Bar Road. Now, there's been some work done up there, hasn't there, in recent times, uh, in regards to that intersection there into um, or near the Dubbo Regional Livestock Markets. $8 million upgrade. <laughs> Eight. There must be a lot. Am I reading this correctly? Eight million dollars to, to to put in a, a basically a, a, an upgrade to the road. There is that and, right? And it's this is the thing with roads; they are incredibly expensive. My God! And I'll go back a few years, many years ago, when I was mayor previously, and Troy Grant was the member. We worked very hard on getting the railway line realigned because the problem was that you had trucks coming along the Newell Highway from Gilgandra wanting to turn left into the sale yards there, into Booth and Bar Road. Mm. And the problem was that railway line was close to the highway. When that first was put in, that whole area there, trucks weren't very long. Mm. But as we've got longer trucks, mm -hmm. then trucks would want to turn in. If there was a train going along there, the back end of the truck could be sticking out on the Newell Highway, creating a problem. Right. So B-doubles, for example, had to go a long route around adding many kilometres to their journey, adding yeah. time and, and distance to their journey. So one of the projects we did way back then was we realigned the railway line. You can imagine oh. that project that was. Yeah, yeah. You're taking these steel railway tracks and curving them around Goodness so we could have enough room to come off the highway. So that was done many years ago. Yep. My yep. guess would be nine, ten years ago. Okay, That was 
stage one. Mm. But then as you turn into the regional livestock market, then again, you could have a problem with traffic where you could have trucks there wanting to turn in and traffic was building up there and so it created a dangerous situation. So we went and put some applications in for some grant funding yep. with both federal and state government because what we wanted to do was slightly realign the road, certainly widen the road, and then have dedicated turning lanes and then just the median islands in the middle as well, just improve those a little bit. So yep. basically, uh, that sounds like a lot, it, but it's turning lanes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Say, at the end of the day, you're putting in a turning lane. Yeah, <laughs> a couple right. of turning lanes there and making it safer. Yeah, but very safe, but yet very expensive turning very lanes. Very expensive. Yeah, so yeah. it was $8 million wow. to do that work. So that's... Forget about the railway line. That railway line was done years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hate to the that. Just for this road works around the the turning in yeah. and turning out of the livestock markets. Yep. Now, keep in mind that council's budget this financial year mm. is $28 million for all the roads. That's, that's it. For 2,875 kilometres of roads. $28 million for all of that. Yep. And it costs $8 million to put in a turning lane. So, Put some context there. So we, we don't have the budgetary capability to go and spend $8 million on that. So we had to basically rely on grants, and we were successful with grants, which is fantastic. We got $6 million from the from the state government, which is from the regional New South Wales infrastructure grant, yep. and eight million, sorry, two million dollars. The other two million dollars to make up the eight million came from round seven of the federal government's heavy vehicle safety and productivity oh, program. Yep. So basically, so that doesn't eat any of our budget here for the roads. Is that minimal. Right? We okay. would have used some staff time. So, in the whole context and the whole scheme of things, you could probably assign maybe a hundred thousand dollars at most yeah, that would have yeah. come out of council's coffers for that. Yep. But these are the projects that I love. Yep. The projects where we've really used next to nothing of our budget, and the money came from state and federal. So six million from state, two million from federal. Fantastic. We've got the project done. It's certainly safer. We're out there during the week doing the opening of it, and it certainly looks safer. We saw trucks going through there. The whole area looks safer. Our livestock markets are going to get busier and busier. Oh, it's brilliant for the livestock market, isn't it? It it is great. That's right. Um, So that'll keep building up. But again, you're right, it does put in context. Wow. When someone says, put some turning lanes in there, yeah, Yeah, sure. Have you got to spare $8 million? Yeah, that's right. And some of that work has to be done under the ground. There might be services under the ground. But just the strength of the pavement, when you've got trucks turning, they can push that pavement off to the side. So you've got to have very strong pavement Mm. you're making in the first Mm. place. But anyway, it's a good project, thanks to the state and federal government, and yeah, good work to our staff as well, because you've got to go out and get these grants, know how to get them. It's the thing, isn't it? Look, we've talked about this before, about the importance of these people in, in council who are out there getting these grants, putting in the submissions, and this is why. You know, we, we can't afford to be putting $8 million into a turning lane. That's right. Because uh, how many turning lanes do we need that we need to be upgraded? <laughs> There's a lot of them out there, I suggest, right. right now. So we, we need this grant money. That's right. And it's also about managing the project, and yeah. that's one of the things we've seen in the past, both with this council and other councils around the state where a state government or a federal government might give money to a council and say, there you go, you've got, here we go, $8 yeah. million. The council's got to manage that project then. And if the council staff and mm. the council leadership is not good enough, then that project is not managed properly. Mm. So then you've got money either wasted or the state and federal government say, we're not going to give you more money in the mm. future because mm. look what you did with that project. Yeah, you, you didn't actually that. manage yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, Or you took too long to deliver that project yep. or whatever it might be. So yeah. anyway, Good project all around. Yeah. Great to see projects where we're not spending the money yeah. and good outcome. That will increase our throughput or the capability for throughput of the livestock markets. Mm. And I know from previous reports, and these are a little bit out of date now, mm. but the number was somewhere in the vicinity of $70 million a year that the livestock markets inject into our economy from people coming to those markets, it's from huge, people spending money there, yeah, yeah. filling it with petrol, having lunch while you're in town to sell your cattle, whatever it might be. Yeah. 
and and we've had upwards of say 1.6 million sheep in a year and 300,000 cattle in wow. a year wow. at its peak, and that changes with seasons as it goes along. Yeah. But oh, it's such an important part of Dubbo, isn't it? Is, it is. That's know, exactly right. Yeah. Well done. Ah, uh, now the RFS Training Centre. All right, the um, now this of course is located out there at uh, near um, the Dubbo Airport. Now there's this little sector, Matt. This has become a real hub, hasn't it? There's there's a lot of things out there now, and there's a lot of training operations that are happening out there. Um, you've got the police there, is that right? Coming, they're, oh, they're building. Police, the, they're on their way. The building is under construction at the moment. Wow. Yeah. So the RFS are out there. Yep, and you've got a couple of. Uh, there's one main RFS, the head office for RFS, the training centre there, but there's another new building that's under construction already. The walls yeah. are up on that particular right. so building. So it's the Royal Fire Service, isn't it? Royal Fire Service, Royal right. Fire Service, sorry. Yeah, that's right. Um, what else is out there? You've Well, Royal Flying Doctor Services. Royal Flying Doctor Service, of course, yeah, well. that sort of thing. Yep. Uh, and you've got private operators out there as well. You've got an SES building. So there's a, a huge number of, of different buildings there. But the this Royal becoming, Fire Service yeah, sorry, in you're particular... Right. You're the training academy that's there is fantastic. The existing building that's there, probably yep. 30 staff employed there, minimum 30 staff employed there. And you've got a accommodation facility there with about 90 beds. Right. The new building they're building will add more training facilities there yep. and another 30 beds there. Yep. And those 90 beds at the moment, every week they're being used. Wow. So you've got people coming in from across the state, yep. doing training there, taking advantage of the facilities there. One of the things that I got to play with during the week was a helicopter training facility or simulator. Right. Now, it's not what you'd normally expect with a helicopter simulator. I didn't get to jump in there and pretend I'm a helicopter I was pilot. I dive bomb in from great heights sort of stuff, taking no. off, land on a carrier or something. That sounds like fun. No, but, doesn't. <laughs> but, but I didn't get to do any of that. What this was was a training simulator, helicopter training simulator, specifically for helicopter spotters they have. Now, in a fire, typically you've got a helicopter that might be at a fairly high level. I'm talking about maybe 3,000 feet above Mm, the ground mm. that's up there trying to get a good overview of a fire. Then you've got another plane called a bird dog, which is typically a fixed-wing aircraft, and that's a small fixed-wing aircraft that will be flying at a lower level to try and work out exactly where water should be dumped. And then you've got the aerial tankers. So we've got an RJ-85 aerial tanker that comes over from Canada each summer. The contract for that, I think, finishes at the end of this fire season. But that RJ-85 is then the plane that comes along and drops the actual retardant on the fire itself. So you've got these three different aircraft Mm. working together. Mm. This simulator that's out there... And I had to go in the simulator, of course. You get to do some fun stuff as That's mayor. Cool. There you go. And yeah, so yeah. you put on a VR headset, you sit in this little helicopter, and then they create a fire around you. So right. what you're doing is you're spotting and giving directions to both the bird dog, who typically the bird dog will communicate directly with the RJ-85, but you might right. be communicating with both the bird dog and, and the RJ-85. And uh, Real Fire Service also has 737 planes they use as well, but out yep. here we use the RJ-85. And so you're looking at the fire, you're looking down around, and in the simulation mm. you're seeing the RJ-85, you're seeing the bird dog, you're talking to these people, and you've obviously got other people that are communicating with you mm. to give you that training because – as with any training, the last thing you want to do is get up in the helicopter mm. for the first time and say, oh, wow, look at that. I, I don't know how we're going to do this and yeah. how are we going to give instructions and there's that fire breaking out over there. So you want to get all that simulator training. The new building that's building, being built yeah. will have multiple of these helicopter training wow. simulators in there. 
And one of the exciting parts about having these facilities, we get people coming through on a regular basis. We've got some hotels in Dubbo send out their courtesy bus at, say, oh. 6 o'clock at night, pick up Good people. Good entrepreneurial ship showing there. I, I love it. I, I love, love it. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'll pick them up, bring them in, have dinner at the pub, that sort of thing, and then take yeah, them yeah. back out afterwards. So you're getting money flowing through the Dubbo economy, but we've also got an international firefighting conference coming up. I was going to talk about this. So this, this is one of the big reasons I brought this up, is that this region – that we're setting up here with all of these training centres. It's not just about us here in New South Wales. This this has a capacity here for an international uh, connectedness, hasn't it, really? Well, this particular conference, they do run in different locations, but they run a simultaneous conference right. where they'll run it in Seattle, yeah. in Athens, and in Dubbo wow. at the same time. Looks and like a T-shirt, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and so we'll have... Maybe 250 delegates come from across the world. Some will come from New South Wales, yep. but they'll come from across the world from really the Asia-Pacific region will be the main focus for people mm. there. Obviously, mm. if you live in the US, you go to Seattle. If you're in Europe, you go to Greece. Yep. But the, the so focus... these people come here too, Dubbo, and, and they come here, or is this all sort of simulcasted out? No, they'll, they'll, there'll be oh, people here. here. Yeah, yeah, there'll, yeah, be, wow. there'll be several hundred people here at this conference awesome. in Dubbo. Yeah. But again, one of the reasons they're coming is because we've got these great training facilities here. Now, again, in a conference, you can go to a conference and you can hear expert speakers talk about things yeah. like you would at a normal conference, yeah. but one of the ways they were able to attract this conference to Dubbo yeah. was because we've got all these facilities. They want to come along and look at the rural fire service training So literally, facilities. you could say it's world-class. Yeah, absolutely right. There's no doubt about it being world-class, yeah. and there'll be people who'll be interested in seeing these facilities from across the world. So, yeah. so again, when's this happened? When's this international conference? Uh, it's not till August, okay. but again, there's a fair bit of work that's going to be done beforehand, and we'll have an opportunity to see those people in Old Jail and the zoo and take advantage of our tourism facilities. And yeah. if you're going to travel from somewhere around internationally to Dubbo, I'm sure you've done the same yourself when you travel to a conference. Yep. If you can, you might take an extra day or two to oh, explore that Taking area. Sites. Exactly right. Yeah, so yeah. we will see this boost in tourism. But we do see lots of conferences around that sort of size, 200, 300 people. Since we are a real sweet spot, we seem to be able to handle those mm. conferences really well. But mm. again, those facilities out there are great on a day-to-day basis to train people across the state, mm. money coming into our economy from that, people being exposed to Dubbo from that, yep. but also you get these opportunities every now and again for those international yeah. standard conferences. So exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. And yeah. that whole facility, there are open days from time to time okay. involving some of those facilities. If you see one of those open days, take advantage of it. Go out there and have a look at just yeah. some of those wonderful facilities Jump in the we simulator. do. Well, not sure if anyone can do that. I've got to be careful <laughs> promising that one. <laughs> but at, at least go there and have a look at what we've have got Have a look there. at it anyway. And That's even it. when you're going out to the airport, just look to your left as you're going in. Yeah. You'll see all these buildings you might not take notice of normally, yeah. but it's pretty it's, exciting it's to see what's there. A precinct happening, isn't it? Well done. That's an interesting one. Uh, Matt, uh, out at Lake Burundong, I didn't realise this. This is a, a bit of a plan for a pumped hydro, hydro scheme. It's easy to say, isn't it? Pumped hydro <laughs> schemes. Have to slow that down. So, what, what's actually happening out here? Because this is—are uh, we talking about the size of um, you know Kosciuszko sort of style, or not? Maybe to that extent. Maybe not quite that extent. Okay. But you've got certainly a lot of things happening because we're in the middle of a renewable energy zone. Mm. So people are looking for opportunities. Now, this is very early stage. So this okay. is giving people news hot off the press. Yep. At this stage, it really is a proposal. There's yep. lots of planning steps to go through. Lots of 
I suppose, legislation to make mm. sure they're adhering to. The normal stuff that goes through. But at this stage, the exciting concept is that they're taking advantage of this renewable energy zone. And there's a, a number of reasons they might want to be in this area, mm. but it's going to be a fairly big project. Now, pumped hydro is basically a big battery. Okay. It frustrates me a little bit when people talk about the solution to renewable energy. We can generate lots of power with pumped hydro. No, you don't generate any power with pumped hydro. You're generating power from things like wind turbines or solar panels. But pumped hydro gives you the ability to store that power. So when you're generating too much power, let's say, for example, middle of the day, you've got lots of sun, you've got all these solar panels, but you might not need to use all that power at the moment. You can store that power in batteries Mm. or you can store that power in something like pumped hydro. So what you'll do is you'll use that excess power to pump water back up into a reservoir that sits at a higher level, higher altitude. And then when you might need that power, so it comes in the middle of the night, oh no, the sun's not shining, Renewable energy is terrible. Well, no, you've been able to pump that water uphill during the day. And now at night time, you then let that water fall down, which then generates power like a hydroelectric scheme. Right. So effectively, it's a way of storing power. Okay. Now, this is going to be a big battery if Mm. this all Mm. goes ahead. We're talking about the capacity for this. 800 megawatts that it can deliver. It's going to run more than your iPhone. (laughs) That's that's right. And that'll be able to deliver that for 12 hours. Right. So again, the idea is you can get through a complete night, but it's not necessarily going to run it every night, but that's the ability for that. You're talking about reservoirs. So you'll have an upper reservoir and a lower reservoir. You're talking about 15 gigalitres of water, so yeah. about 1% of the capacity of Lake Burundong. Okay. But it's not as if you're using that water. Some people are worried about, oh, no, that's taking all that water mm. out of the system. It'll take it out of the system once. Yep. But and then it stores it going back and forth. It's going time. up and down. Yeah, and yeah. down. Sure, you'll get some evaporation, so you might need to yeah. basically refill that from time mm. to time. But it, it's, it's recycling that water. It's an energy source. It's an energy yeah. source. That's right. So the upper reservoir will be about 350 metres higher than the lower reservoir. Okay. And that's important because, obviously, you want that fall, you want that drop yep, to be able yep. to generate the speed in the water to be able to spin the turbine to, to the bottom of that fall. There's work involved in the construction of this, I'm thinking. You'll have hundreds of people involved in the construction of this project. Yeah, yeah. The running of it, once it's up and running, not as many, because obviously a lot of these projects are very automated now, yep. but you'll certainly have a, a, a number of people involved in, in that. There'll be some injections in the economy during construction, mm. some other injections in the economy, smaller injections once it's actually up and running. Mm. But again, the potential around this region, this whole idea of the Central West Arana Renewable Energy Zone, hmm. the opportunities there are enormous. Yeah. We talked last week on the podcast a little bit about the money that Council's got to, to look at developing a green energy hub up around Yarrandale Road, somewhere like that. Hmm. Again, what opportunities there? Look, I can think of a few off the top hmm. of my head, but there'll be opportunities in a decade's time. We'll be talking about that going, wow. We didn't think we'd be able to do that. Yeah. I mean, tourism is one I'm just thing. thinking exactly right. Like, imagine tourism. Imagine um, this whole region, and it's all getting pretty close. Like, it's 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 not like you're going to have to travel 100 kilometres from a wind farm to a solar farm and then another 100 kilometres across to a hydroelectric scheme, whatever. Like, they're all pretty close. So imagine from the point of view, I'm thinking from educational perspective. I'm thinking from university graduate perspective. I'm thinking of uh, those taking undergraduate courses perspective. I'm thinking just the general tourism perspective. There's, this would be a really interesting sort of area to look at, I'd suggest, and from the point of view of tourism. It does. And it's funny you say tourism because people say, tourism, how's a renewable energy zone going to be related to that? Now, mm. there's a couple of examples that I think of. One is out at Nevertire. Mm. There's a large solar farm out at Nevertire. And as part of that large solar farm, they have 
a viewing platform. A viewing platform. And people go and stand on the viewing platform. Look at a solar farm. And look across the solar farm. <laughs> I just find that fascinating. And I know... They take their own cups of coffee with them to watch that? <laughs> I don't know if there's a coffee shop nearby. There's a pub nearby. There's but, a pub nearby. But I just find that fascinating yep. because yep. you laugh and I laughed when I first heard about it, but then... Yeah. The number of people who go and stand on that viewing platform and look at that is amazing. So if you look at that as one example, and then the other example is the dish, the Parks Radio Telescope. Absolutely. Now, when they built that, they built that for scientific reasons. Yep. Yep. And then someone, some genius said, you know what, we should put a visitor centre there. And Mm. I'm sure someone laughed at him Mm. or Mm. him or her. Mm. But now Mm. we've got a visitor centre at the Parks Telescope that's a major part of tourism for the Parks region. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's it's everything's the add-on bit you could do with this as well. So now I then start to think of some sort of tourism building Mm. associated with this whole renewable energy zone. Imagine that you could look out across solar panels and wind turbines. Maybe you could even see a pumped hydro scheme having data sitting inside that's showing that wind turbine and how much power. You can just imagine having a little turbine sitting there that you come along and you blow on and it shows how much power is generating or a light bulb comes on, all sorts of interactive things, Questacon-style interactive things. Absolutely. Having that and having, as said, all those groups that you mentioned that might want to come along and visit that, even going further, imagine being able to have not a, an operational one, but imagine having a wind turbine that you could, I don't know, go up inside yeah, or abseil yeah, down the outside of or absolutely. have something like yeah, that. Yeah, I, yeah. I think the potential is huge there. Yep. But again, there's this thing that I keep talking about called the new economy. Yeah. The old economy in Australia was digging up stuff and selling it to people around the world yep. so they could make products that then we would buy back. Yep, yep. The new economy, I think, is about energy. Yes. We will get our, and this is me mm. just speculating here, but we will get, I believe, our manufacturing sector back in Australia mm. because we will have net zero energy we can use as part of that. Yep. That's a big statement, I realise, but I think they are the opportunities that we will have. So yeah. pumped hydro scheme is just another thing that will be linked to our renewable energy zone. There will be lots of other things that will be linked to that. I can't tell you all of them. There will be people who come up with Great ideas associated oh. with all of this. But you know, you say the fact that this this is a sort of 10-year sort of thought process. I've just come back, as you know, from England and overseas there. All throughout England, all throughout Wales, wherever you go now, you've got wind turbines. They're everywhere. They are literally everywhere. They're out in the ocean. They're on the land. You know, they're in these the Cornwall, Devon. You, you name it down south where the Atlantic sort of blows. They're all through that region there. These beautiful, majestic regions. They're, they're scattered with all these wind turbines everywhere. You get into a, 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 an Uber or a taxi, they're all EVs. You know, they're all EVs. Everywhere you go, Paris, London, Cardiff, you name it, they're all EVs. We are, I know what we're here in Australia, and I know that we, we literally just say we, we're used to digging stuff out of the ground and that's where we've got all our energy from. So the rest of the world are not doing this. They're, they're, they're moving forward. Mm. You know, uh, you've got to get out there, folks, and see what's happening around the rest of the world because we literally are. You're saying 10 years. Well, they're already there. Yeah. You know, they're already there in so many of these places. We, it's up to us to catch up. And that's, that's the thing. And I know that there's a lot of arguments about we've got to get our infrastructure in place. Yes, we do. But you know what? The rest of the world are already there doing this. And one of the frustrating parts is that I normally see, and the data backs this up, normally see Australians as early adopters of technology in mm. general. So when new products are released, when different technologies are available, Aussies are usually pretty good at adopting that technology. Yeah. But with this, with our wind turbines, with our energy, with our EVs, 
we seem to be lagging. And I actually point the finger a little bit at government mm. for that, at all levels of government for that, yeah. because I just don't think they've shown enough leadership to help us move forward. People are ready, people in Australia are ready to change, to make yeah. changes. They've been good at that in the past, but we just need a few pushes, nudges yeah, along the yeah, way in the right yeah, direction. So absolutely. you're right, around the world we're seeing that example. Yeah. Uh, we will get there and projects like this will have to happen. Just to give you an idea of the life cycle of this particular project, just the phase one process, the development, all the legislation, the planning legislation, et cetera, that I have to go through, mm. the estimation of that is about three years. Yep. That'll include the social and economic assessments, that type of thing. The construction of this project, so again, mm. you've got two reservoirs, pipes, mm. and the actual hydroelectric component of that, that's going to take four years. Yep. So we're talking about seven years. So probably 2030 before this is up and running. So we've yeah. got to do things now. Absolutely. Because this yeah. is 2030 yeah, and, yeah. and we're saying, well, how are we going to turn the lights on tomorrow? So yeah. that's important. Yep. The operational phase of this, before they've got to do a major upgrade, they're talking about 50 years. Wow. So And okay. again, you can yep. imagine the upgrade will, of that will be in 50 yeah. years' time. Right, let's put some new, more efficient hydroelectric pumps in there and, and yeah. make that better or they're worn out now we've got to replace yeah. them whatever but it's it's big picture yeah. and expensive projects i don't actually have a cost on that particular project but i can't imagine it's cheap to put that no. one together but i'm loving the way we're moving forward exactly right now matt um with the recent floods if you were Wanting here as a Dubbo resident to uh, to jump on and sort of see which roads were closed, uh, you know what the levels of the the floods uh, were at, the river systems are at. Um, some people would go to different sort of websites, and um, they I know council would sort of put some stuff up, and there'd be other sort of sites out there. One of the biggest one, of course, is live traffic, uh, which is the main one I suggest that most people go to. Now I notice here the fact that council is looking at trialing um, what they call one road trial. And what's what's this about? Is this about going to simply using one uh, common site? Correct. And that's one of the things that was exposed during the floods. And again, you're always trying to learn as things happen and how can you do it better in the future. And certainly that was one of the issues that we saw is that if you wanted to travel from Dubbo to somewhere else mm. in the state or even out of the state, but if you were traveling around the state, you might need to go and look at live traffic, which gave you some information. Then you might look at the regional council's website. Oh, but I'm going to travel through another council area. Mm. I'll go and look at their mm. website. And you might end up looking at three or four different websites. How often were each of those updated? Mm. So it was all a bit clumsy yep. in that process. Yep. So we've started a trial. It only just started last week. And essentially that one road trial, exactly as you said, rather than have anywhere on a website that you'll go to to look for updates on the roads in the Dubbo Regional Council area, yep. you'll go to live traffic and information that we have, our staff put together, automatically will feed to live traffic. So you'll only need to go to there. Now that's for our council area. Obviously other council areas are still doing it on their websites, but this trial is designed to see how well we can make it work, how efficient it is, how much staff time it takes, a whole range of issues there. And the idea from the state government, I'm assuming, is they get to the stage where all councils across the state yep feed that information directly into live traffic so you'll have one location to go to the next time there's floods or damage or yep. storms or whatever it might be, you'll know that I go to live traffic and that's got all the information 
all up to date, mm. as up to date as possible, mm. and we can just check there for that site. So it makes no, sense, no, it's logical. Absolutely. And the question would be, why haven't we done it in the past? And this is part of the problem sometimes with the computer systems. Mm. You've got different systems, different protocols, different ways you've got to feed the information in, and New South Wales government uses live traffic. Yep. That's not necessarily the same format that we might use at various councils. So sure. we'll sure. go forward with that and see how it works. I'm assuming it will all work fantastically. I think it'll be fine. I think it's a great way to go, actually, to be honest. I think everybody likes it easier when it's just simply one-stop shops. Yeah, that's exactly mm. right. So let's keep it that way. So anyway, keep an eye for that. Beautiful. Going forward, if you want to see about roads now, as of last week, go to Live Traffic. That'll yep. have all the information for Dubbo Roads. Perfect. Well, Matt, it's that time of the day. It's time for your limerick. Now, I must admit, I, I've missed your limerick, Matt. I, oh, I, as I say, yes. look, oh, look, see, there you go. Hey, there it is. <laughs> the, I've been away for the best part of six weeks, and um, now I, I'm hoping the fact that the, you have something very special for me uh, lined up after being my uh, first time back in after six weeks out. So, all right, Matt, what do you got for us today, buddy? Well, actually, a couple of things. The limerick is all about you this week, but I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Oh, shucks, I'm feeling but, but it was, very special. It was quite funny because I do like to do a poem each time on Australia Day, each year at Australia Day. And some people love their poetry. I'm one of them. Yes. There are some other people, and you know, maybe my wife would be in this category, who aren't as big a fan <laughs> of poetry as I am. But it was quite <laughs> funny after Australia Day, there were people who would come up to me and say, oh, thanks very much. It was a great day and love the citizenship and all this. Yep. Oh, and I loved your poem. And, and I'm not making this part up. People did come over and tell me I love oh, the that's poem. That's nice to hear. There it is. And, and the first thing I would say to all of those is, please go and talk to my wife and just have that same <laughs> conversation with her. Put a good word for her, <laughs> will you please? Right, that's right. Because she's not convinced. that. In, in fact, when I'm doing a poem like that and my wife's sitting in the audience, as she was on Australia Day, I make sure I don't look at my wife because I know she'll have a frown on her face. <laughs> and it might put look me for off. the lighthouse in the room, not your wife. <laughs> it might put me off while I'm doing my poetry. So anyway, so no, this one this week is all about, we've been waiting for your return, so all about the return of you. Oh, mate, that's very special. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to listening to it. Fire away. This week sees the return of our host, who has toured the UK from coast to coast. Now we can embark on season two with Mark, to the return of you, our listeners do toast. Oh, Matt. Oh, a little bit of tear running down my eye there. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's very, very nice. Matt, listen, buddy, it is excellent about it. I'm loving the fact we're back again. Uh, I must admit, I enjoyed my six weeks away. It is very hard not to enjoy being in these exotic places. But it's lovely to be back with you. It's lovely to share with you too what's happening around the Dubbo region. That's what it's all about. Yeah, and we're getting good feedback from the podcast. We had good feedback about the interviews I did with the various individual councillors. Yeah, so they, well done. They well liked done. hearing from those people. Uh, good feedback, and people were looking forward to you coming back, which is great. But uh, just spread the word, I suppose, is the main thing. People that yeah. are listening now, spread get the word. There. Get other people to come along and listen to it, because, again, the idea is to give you as much information yeah. about council as possible, and that's what I believe we do, yeah. and it's a good format to do that. You can listen in the car, listen while you're going for a bike ride, whatever, that's and uh, you'll get the update each week. We'll continue to do that. But It'll be nice to see as many listeners as possible. Oh, absolutely. Boosted up there. Well, guys, that just about wraps us up for our Merrill Memo for this week. So thanks again, Matt, for updating us on what happened there in regards to the Australia Day celebrations. To give us a bit of a rundown on that uh, very expensive Booth and Bar Road intersection, I think it's become Dubbo's uh, latest tourist attraction. Go and check it out. And, of course, fix up that uh, sandy beach in the right way, guys. I'm sure you get it all sorted out. Until next week, everyone, Mark Barnes saying goodbye from the Merrill Memo. Meryl Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.